0: (laughs) My search led me to the study of the spiritual forces with which all of us are blessed. And it was in this field that I came upon a clue which has enabled me to help millions of people to find their earthly destinies. I want to describe my discovery in the simplest terms possible. Because it will reveal to you why it is true that whatever the mind can conceive and believe, the mind can achieve, regardless of how many times you may have failed in the past or how lofty your aims and hopes may be. I caught my first fleeting glimpse of the profound law which provides the means by which we may choose our own purpose in life and attain it while I was being coached by Andrew Carnegie during the organization of the science of success philosophy I had just finished telling mister Carnegie that I feared he had uh, chosen the wrong person to give the world the first practical philosophy of personal success because of my youth my lack of education and my lack of finances well at this point mister Carnegie delivered a lecture that I shall never forget because it changed my entire life and paved the way for my helping to change the lives of millions of people, some of them not yet born. Let me call your attention to a great power which is under your control, said Mr. Carnegie, a power which is greater than poverty, greater than the lack of education, greater than all of your fears and superstitions combined. It is the power to take possession of your own mind and direct it to whatever ends you may desire. This profound power, Mr. Carnegie continued, is the gift of the Creator, and it must have been considered the greatest of all of his gifts to man, because it is the only thing over which man has the complete and unchallengeable right of control and direction. When you speak of your poverty and lack of education, Mr. Carnegie explained, You are simply directing your mind power to attract these undesirable circumstances, because it is true that whatever your mind feeds upon, your mind attracts to you. Now you see why it is important that you recognize that all success begins with definiteness of purpose, with a clear picture in your mind of precisely what you want from life. Uh, Then Mr. Carnegie continued his speech with a description of a great universal truth which made such an impact upon my mind that I began then and there to give myself a new outlook on life and set up for myself a goal so far above my previous achievements that it shocked my friends and relatives when they heard about it. Everyone, said Mr. Carnegie, comes to the earth plane blessed with the privilege of controlling his mind power and directing it to whatever ends he may choose. But, he continued, everyone brings over with him at birth. The equivalent of two sealed envelopes, one of which is clearly labeled the riches you may enjoy if you take possession of your own mind and direct it to ends of your own choice. And the other is labeled the penalties you must pay if you neglect to take possession of your mind and direct it. And now let me reveal to you, said Mr. Carnegie, the contents of those two sealed envelopes. In the one labeled riches is uh, this list of blessings. One, sound health. Two, peace of mind. Three, a labor of love of your own choice. Four, freedom from fear and worry. Five, a positive mental attitude. Six, material riches of your own choice and quantity. In the sealed envelope, labeled penalties, Mr. Carnegie continued, is this list of the prices one must pay for neglecting to take possession of his own mind. One, ill health. Two, fear and worry. Three, indecision and doubt. Four, frustration and discouragement throughout life. Five, poverty and want. Six, and a whole flock of evils consisting of envy, greed, jealousy, anger, hatred, and superstition.
1: Hi, welcome to the show. This is Jeff Till on 500Years.org. It's September 2015, and today's topic is about a book I recently read called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. The audio that you just heard to open the show was from 1937, and Napoleon Hill giving his speech on the book, which it might actually be the copy of the book itself. You can track this down on YouTube, and it's about two and a half hours long. It's just uh, him sitting in front of a camera describing what his sort of life's work was and why it was important. Now, the book itself, I'm not sure I would recommend to everybody, and I'm not not sure it's particularly good or bad. Uh, I don't feel like I learned a lot from the book, but still, I raced through it and read the whole thing, and it made me think a lot. So I have to say, even though maybe the aesthetic or the visceral experience uh, wasn't amazing, the intellectual experience was certainly worth having. And what I thought I'd do with this podcast is I would first give some general thoughts about what Napoleon Hill says in this book, uh, describe a little bit of its history, and then reflect upon how those things are in my life. Now, I'm not rich by any means. Uh, I have a long way to go, but I think I'm not at the beginning of this this journey either. I think I've already learned a lot of the lessons and have set myself uh, onto this path. So just a little bit of background uh, about this book. Uh, I'm going to read from the book jacket. I was going to do this myself, but I might as well just uh, use this one that's already written. Think and Grow Rich is the seminal work by the well-loved and world-renowned Napoleon Hill, a contemporary of Dale Carnegie. Originally published in 1937, Hill's money-making secrets are as powerful today as they were then and can change your life forever. After interviewing more than 500 of the most affluent men and women of his time, Hill uncovered the secret to great wealth based on the notion that if we can learn to think like the rich, we can discover wealth and success. He developed a simple but powerful 13-step formula to help you to identify your goals, master the secret of true and lasting success, obtain whatever you want in life, join the ranks of the super successful. And so some of the people he, am um, now just talking, and some of these, these famous people included besides... Carnegie also included Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and a slew of other people like Woolsworth and trained train guys and people you would recognize as being successful rich people in that early part of the 20th century. As a side note about this edition of book of the book that I got, which is the Landmark bestseller now revised and updated for the 21st century, uh, a PhD Arthur R. Pell, uh, who is a Napoleon Hill expert, has updated the book uh, to bring it up to date from its 1937 roots. Uh, he does it. He does an okay job. I, I started. Uh, he mostly brings up stories about FedEx and um, Bill Gates and other, you know, successful people who would be more relevant to uh, our recent memory. I, I didn't find those sections to be that great. In, in particular, there was one section where Hill himself goes on to great detail about how Alexander Graham Bell and um, Carnegie himself like only spent like a year at school and didn't really care for schooling at all. And then the update goes into great detail about Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's, how he found that school was so important that when he was 58 years old, he went back and got his high school GED. I don't think that's like a great story. That sounds like a dumb story. Um, So I didn't think that it reinforced what Hill was saying uh, with some of the updates. It was sort of counterintuitive to the main message. Now, one thing that always makes me frustrated with books about business or success or getting rich or anything like that is they never just have like really simple advice that's like go in your backyard and plant a pear tree and you'll get rich. Uh, it's always about themes of having self-confidence, being creative, being dedicated to the cause, um, doing the hard work, planning, following through, uh, being intelligent, and you know, generally being hardworking and uh, not letting people stop you. Uh, those kind of lessons I think I, I've already learned a, a lot of the way, and, and they're so intuitive that you're like, oh, do I need to read a book to tell me? I mean, really, a good, rich book, in my opinion— uh, you would just open it up and a check for ten million dollars would fall out of it, and then it would be done. But of course that 's not the case, and probably a lot of times books like these are just telling people things they already intuitively know, uh, but just need to be reminded of or needed to needed to have phrased in a formal and purposeful way so that you can act upon it. Now, the book has a lot of weird sort of hocus pocusy type of language that Hill uses to describe uh, these new sort of powers that you will receive by using your mind uh, to direct your future and to obtain witches, riches. Uh, he uses words like infinite intelligence uh, and then tapping into other people's brains and other stuff that sounds very supernatural. And it's hard to tell when reading it whether he means it to be that you will actually develop uh, you know, superhuman powers, brain powers that let you do things that that betray nature, or if he's just using it as sort of a metaphor for new abilities that you'll have, because those it works either way, and I've been taking it to be the later, um, where as you develop your mind, you realize that you can access just about any piece of information, you're able to access any piece of expertise that you need, and you can... As he says, you can suddenly predict uh, bad things down the road and you can also predict opportunities that are going to present themselves and then act upon them. One of the, the biggest and most important themes, in my opinion, in the book was how Hill described that it's not external forces that create uh, richness uh, within, within a person or wealth. The wealth is created by inventing unique value Um, providing more or giving more to the world than you actually take out. And there's nothing external that sets the circumstances for you to become rich. So I think a lot of people, uh, especially in the work mentality, uh, think that to become rich, you either need to be born of a certain stature, born into wealth, uh, have unique talents that you were just sort of born with uh, through your genes, Um, Or someone's going to come and give you the opportunity. Somebody's going to come and give you the money. Or that luck or fate is going to bestow it upon you. And Hill's opinion, or his methodology that he's, you know, through working with all these rich people, is that everything comes from your own mind. And nothing is really outside of your own control. So you can't wait for somebody else or some condition to come and make you wealthy. It all starts within your own self. And then what he does is he goes through these different various mental exercises and then uh, real real activities that lets you sort of supercharge your mind into obtaining the things that you want. And so it becomes a lot of it becomes changing how you think and then exercising that thinking muscle so that it becomes more and more powerful, uh, more intelligent, uh, to the point where he says you can access the infinite intelligence of the universe and I thought that was pretty powerful. Now most people in my opinion that I've seen and cuz I know this because I've I've been this way for a long time view working and the activity of procuring money as a work function where you're sort of told to show up at a certain time, you're handed you know, however many tasks that are, are you know, you're to do. There's this lunch break at at 12 that lasts for half an hour, you eat your lunch and then you leave, you stay there till 5, and then you go home when they tell you to. And a lot of this book is about breaking out of that mindset that you are to show up somewhere, do tasks that you're told to, uh, and then follow the schedule. And that, that anything really great's going to happen to you uh, th- doing that kind of uh, lifestyle. Now, in my opinion, that's a schooling mentality. That's the, the, fifth, the 13 years or the... Th- 13 years plus four years of university that everyone was taught to do is that you're going to be, you know, to show up somewhere at a certain time, be told what tasks to do, eat your lunch now, and then leave at uh, when the school bell ends. So a lot of this book, in, in my opinion, is really an unschooling book on how to break out of the doing what you're told to do and instead using your mind to define what you're going to do going forward. Another takeaway I got from the book was on this building mind strength or increasing your intelligence, which I believe comes from actually exercising your brain and taking it to new places. I think a lot of people sometimes presume that intelligence is something that you either just have or you don't have, and there's no way to obtain it. If you think about like a sports analogy, uh, someone might see a weightlifter and say, that's a really good weightlifter because he can lift weights for six hours at a time and lift 500 pounds over his head but the point is is that he didn't really uh, he can't do that just because he's a good weightlifter. he's a good weightlifter because he uh, exercised six hours at a time and increased the weight that he would lift uh, over time so I think a lot of people would probably say like well doesn't everybody think all the time and that is true but if you're just thinking about things like what you'll have to do at work or what you're going to prepare for dinner you're not really stretching your mind in any creative or sophisticated way the same thing is if if you only consume information like fiction uh, tv shows or even the news then you're really just getting a series of events over time with uh, pre-created conclusions and while that can be enjoyable in some instances i don't think you're really exercising your mind I would say the same, probably even worse for sports. Uh, If you're watching a tennis match, uh, this probably it could be exciting, um, or you know a football game. I I don't necessarily find tennis matches exciting, but uh, a football game might be very entertaining. But you're probably not expanding your mind. The types of things that you will have to do is you know either read very challenging material, uh, such as economics or philosophy, and then spend a lot of time creating being creative and inventing your own thought and people who do this uh, over and over and really spend the time working their mind to build intelligence become more intelligent so it's it's almost there's i don't want to say it's unfortunate but if you think about it uh, smart people often have the ability to get smarter and smarter and smarter because they keep on working out their their uh, intelligence Whereas someone of, uh, who's not particularly concerned about being intelligent or maybe somewhat average or unintelligent doesn't take the time and opportunities to work on more and more complex thought. And that would indicate that there would be a growing gap between the merely average intelligent person and the very intelligent person that continues to grow as people get older. And I don't think it's too far to say that intelligence and wealth are either highly corollary or highly causal. I don't know if someone would be offended by that, but it's probably true. Uh, To be wealthy, you have to have the advantage of being smart, and then you have to have the smarts to develop your smarts. Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, is divided into 16 chapters, the meat of it being 13 chapters on the 13 lessons, or the 13 steps to riches. Uh, He starts with an introduction uh, with the power of thought, and this is where, as we were talking about earlier, he says, all richness comes from inside your mind, so everything must be born through your thought process, how you think, and how you improve your thinking. Again, it's never external. It's all from the power of your mind. And that's where wealth has to start with. And that's how it can be achieved. And then it goes through the 13 steps. And then it has uh, two chapters uh, on fear and the devil's workshop. And these are evils or sort of bad things that people have that stop them from being rich and so it's fear and jealousy and uh, sloth and things like that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the 13 lessons uh, pretty quickly and just give you my feedback, sort of tell you what, how I thought he, what he meant by it and then what I read into it and I, how I'm going to sort of apply it to my business. Uh, the first step is desire. So that's the starting point of all achievement is that you have to really want your goal of obtaining wealth or uh, obtaining whatever you consider wealth. It doesn't necessarily have to be money. Uh, it, it could be another achievement. Uh, it could be prestige. It could be love. It could be uh, doing what you love. Uh, but this is mostly we de- defining wealth as success in business. So that, that makes pretty much, that's that makes a lot of sense. If you don't want it, you're not going to get it. So if you don't really desire wealth, then there's no point in even trying to get it. And that can be kind of a, a weird conversation because wealth means a lot of different things to different people. Uh, someone might be happy uh, with making several hundred thousand dollars a year and not working very much. And now that doesn't put you into the 1%. That puts you into about the 90s, you know, you're the at the 90 percentile, 97th percentile, uh, and some people would consider that wealthy. Other people want uh, this sort of Carnegie wealth where you're going to be able to build uh, a 50,000-square-foot mansion on 100 acres of land, have millions and millions of dollars, or perhaps even be a billionaire. But not everyone's willing to work to get that. And not everyone wants to live frust- in a, st- a state of frustration if they don't get that. So anyway, the desire is an important conversation to have with yourself. You know, what do you want and how much do you want? And if you don't have it, then perhaps uh, chasing wealth isn't for you. You should just go into the work work mentality of working for someone else. The next step is faith. And this is visualizing and believing in the attainment of desire And it sort of has to do with confidence in a way of knowing that it's going to happen. And so he actually suggests uh, that you almost trick yourself into believing that you will achieve your wealthy goals no matter what. And that's followed up with his uh, third step, which is auto-suggestion, the medium for influencing the subconscious mind. Uh, These two sort of go together. So he actually wants you to sort of hypnotize yourself, and he he actually suggests that you write down uh, a certain pledge that he he puts out in the book, and you say it to yourself every morning when you get up and every night before you go to sleep. Uh, later, I'm going to play some more audio of Napoleon Hill, where he tells you to get a piece of paper, two pieces of paper, and write the goal. Uh, on on the first one and i forget what he wants in the second one but anyway you start almost using it as a mantra so that your faith becomes unshakable you just always know that you are going to obtain your wealth the fourth step is developing specialized knowledge uh this is through personal experience and observation so specialized knowledge uh is just what it sounds like. It's it's knowledge that pretty much either no one else have, or is very rare or is specific to you and is of great value to other people. Now, through all of this, um, he always talks about defining your special purpose. And this idea is that everyone who wants to be wealthy has to have a unique purpose in this world, which they identify themselves as, uh, which is sort of carefully designed, and will ultimately give more than you take in. And defining your special purpose is one of the most important parts of this. It's you know it can be central to your identity. Uh, for some people, it might be what they love to do. Uh, other people, you know, when he he talks about some of these rich people like Alexander Graham Bell, uh, Henry Ford, uh, Carnegie, you know, you don't know if if they really like you know, making automobiles or, you know, drilling for oil. Uh, But they do, you know, love being masters of business. So it's not always necessarily that the content of the job is what you love, but the special purpose has to be definite and front of mind always. Uh, The fifth step is imagination, the workshop of the mind. And this is about being creative. I think that's pretty self-evident in being wealthy is that you have to be able to create something new you have to be able to imagine things that other people don't imagine and figure things out in ways that other people haven't figured out before it's not so much that you can just copy people and to some degree you can i've i've told other people who i've met who were wondering how to pursue life and they weren't doing very well is that well you could just find someone successful and do what they do and that that makes sense as well and I wouldn't be surprised if that's sort of the birth of a lot of doctors and lawyers and probably accountants as well who want a path to making a decent amount of money, don't necessarily particularly love uh, writing prescriptions or or um, dealing with law books or adding numbers, but find it as a good path to copy other people into at least a, a relative you know, state of riches. The next, the sixth step is organized planning the crystallization of desire into action. And this is about creating a definite plan for how you're going to obtain your wealth, and then of course being able to follow it and change it when it need be. So I think planning is important too. Uh, Decision, the mastery of procrastination is the seventh step to riches. And this is about uh, not procrastinating, knowing how to make decisions very quickly. Uh, he writes that most of the people that he interviewed were very quick to make a decision and were very slow to ever reverse one. So that's kind of interesting. I I think that's true. I, I procrastinate a lot personally, and I think it's probably has been uh, the deleterious to my, my road to riches. Next, persistence, the sustained effort necessary to induce induced faith, the eighth step to riches. So persistence is being able to show up every day and to keep chipping away at your activities and to never quit uh, towards making your goals. He actually says in here that quitters never win and winners never quit. So that's sort of, again, one of those Typical things you would hear of wealthy people is that they're very persistent. Now, I have another piece of advice um, from the guy who wrote 4-Hour Work Week, who says always—he says, uh, a Tim Ferriss, I believe, he says, always be quitting. And so he means by any time you're having an activity that you don't like, let's say you're in a movie that you're not liking, or you finished half a dinner and you're full, uh, or you've started a business that you hate, is to always be quitting. So those two pieces of advice— sort of uh, run up against each other but they're interesting to think about Uh, the ninth step to riches is power of the mastermind the driving force so the mastermind so what the mastermind is is uh, Carnegie himself had something like 20 phones on his desk and each phone led to an employee of his who had a specific body of knowledge and together they make up the mastermind so it's whatever sort of network of advisors, uh, experts, employees, etc. that can supplement the information that you have and become this sort of master resource of information. And again, it's a lot of the themes in here talk about sort of developing these superpowers of thought, of mastermind, of infinite infinite intelligence. And the point I get out of it is that you're never to assume that there's any piece of knowledge that's outside of your... Uh, ability to get it. You're, there's no piece of expertise that is unavailable to you. The rich person, the person with the power of thought, always knows how to get the information that they need. Okay, the next one here, uh, and this, okay, this is this is where it starts getting weird. Uh, the 10th step to riches is the mystery of sex transmutation. And what's interesting is Napoleon Hill very much believes that rich to be rich, you have to have uh, a wife or girlfriend that you love very much. And this was written in 1937, so he doesn't have much about rich women. Uh, but you have to have somebody that you love in order to become rich. And it might not even be uh, the same person or, or whatever, but he says you have to be, have this passionate um, love affair with somebody and he said rich people have uh, are very sexualized in that they uh i I guess they constantly want to have sex and they have tremendous sexual energy and sex transmutation is to take sex energy which is the most powerful emotion according to napoleon uh you know the most vibrant the most uh primordial and the most powerful, and to be able to put that sex energy into the work of getting wealthy. So you transmutate your sex energy into positive wealth energy. Now, I I don't know if this is true or not. um, And maybe I didn't even understand the chapter. So if someone hears this and says, Jeff, you got that wrong, you didn't get it, uh, please do reach out and let me know. Because it's very curious. But It's interesting how plain, because remember, Napoleon Hill interviewed uh, either hundreds or thousands of wealthy people. And obviously this, you have to love someone, and sexual power must have came through uh, for him to develop this methodology. Okay, next is the subconscious mind, the connecting link, the 11th step to riches. This is another odd one as well. And he got this mostly from Alexander uh, Graham Graham Bell in that you could train your subconscious mind to pick up the mind waves of other people. So as you got close to them, or even you didn't have to be close, uh, but you were able to understand what other people were thinking uh, just by sort of reading their thoughts. And he also said the wealthy people are able to foresee problems and foresee opportunities. Now, again, I don't know how hocus-pocus this is or does you know whether it is really superpowers like that would be in a comic book, but it, it could also just be that you become so uh, sort of aware of other people's feelings and uh, what they're thinking, and you become so aware of the environment and how time is going to either bring risk or rewards to you that you just begin sensing them in an intuitive way. And so since I don't want to call him crazy, I'm going to go with that explanation. And this is where this sort of goes with the 12th step to riches, which is the brain, a broadcasting and receiving station for thought, which is, again, very similar to um, the subconscious on how to broadcast your thoughts and, and receive thoughts from other people. Again, I'm going to call this a sense of intuition that you just develop because uh, you embrace your your subconscious and your brain is so attuned to uh, working with these kind of things. Again, going back to that sort of exercising the brain is that uh, eventually your brain is able to do things that the unexercised brain isn't able to do. The sixth, the next one, this is the last one, the 13 steps to riches, the sixth sense, the door to the temple of wisdom. And as I understood it, this is finally where your brain is so well developed that you're literally given keys to the temple of wisdom, uh, meaning you're pretty much as smart as you can get. I, You know, I probably have to reread that one. Because it just the reading of the title doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, those are the thirteen steps. Um, as I said in the introduction, there was no magic. You know, no, no check fell out of the book, and there was no you know magic thing you could do to just get the money. Uh, all those things: persistence, imagination, you know, planning, thinking, pers- uh, you know, networking. All all those things are things that we always understand. And there's a good chance that I've read derivative works of this. I, this is my first time reading this book, but I've read a lot of other books who perhaps they had read this book or even had based it off someone else who had read this book. So a lot of these thoughts are probably common in sort of wealth creation and business management, but here's the source. And, uh, those were the steps. The last part of this book I wanted to talk about uh, was a section of the major attributes of leadership in the organized planning chapter. And what I particularly liked about these is that I've discovered them on my own prior to reading the book. Uh, Probably I don't have them at 100%. Maybe I'm halfway there. But just in dealing with my clients and my employees, I thought these attributes for leadership generally represented uh, just good... Attributes uh, for dealing with people. So I'm going to read them and comment as I see fit So here here's the 11 major attributes of leadership number one unwavering courage Based on knowledge of self and one's occupation No follower wishes to be dominated by a leader who lacks self-confidence and courage No intelligent follower will be dominated by such a leader for very long Uh, so this is an this is important because Every time that you do something, you have to show that you have confidence and you have to do some brave things that uh, your employees probably wouldn't be willing to do. The biggest one probably in entrepreneurship is to live without a steady income and then also to be willing to place bets and make, take risk and make capital investments using the same money that you might use to pay rent or to feed your children. And right there, that bit of courage to make decisions and then follow through with them is something that your employees are going to be willing to do and your clients will be impressed by. Number two is self-control. People who cannot control themselves can never control others. Self-control sets a mighty example for one's followers, which the more intelligent will emulate. So I, I think that's true, too. Uh, Number three, a keen sense of justice. Without a sense of fairness and justice, no leader can command and retain the respect of his or her followers. I find this to be uh, useful sometimes when we have troublesome clients that are giving my employees a hard time. They don't want to be treated badly, and if I can come up and be their advocate, and I've gone as far as to even tell clients to stop calling us, because I thought they were being unfair to my employees. Uh, there's also a sense of being fair uh, in terms of opportunity, uh, you know, not piling on all of the worst tasks to the, the one person, and then also being able to reward when, when things get tough. So if I have employees that put in a 60-hour work week, one week, uh, I, I'll go out of my way to make sure that they can have some time off later. Uh, And if it gets really bad, then I just give them money. And so those are things of justice, I think, uh, with employees. Now, for clients, uh, if they get overcharged, for example, or they double pay, which happens sometimes, I'm very quick to be fair and offer them a credit or to do work. Uh, Also, if I feel like I haven't satisfied them, Uh, There's a thing of fairness where we make sure we do what's right and so that they feel completely satisfied. And I think those are senses of justice right there in terms of being fair in business dealings. Uh, Number four, definiteness of decision. People who waver in decisions show, show that they are not sure of themselves. They cannot lead others successfully. So... Earlier in this book on decision-making, Napoleon Hill says that decision-makers are very quick to make a decision and then very slow to reverse decisions. So everyone likes a decision-maker who's very crisp and precise and quick in making a new decision. Number five, definite, definiteness of plans. The successful leader must plan the work and work the plan A leader who moves by guesswork without practical, definite plans is comparable to a ship without a rudder. Sooner or later, it will land on the rocks. So it's good to have not only to plan and to have very detailed plans at many different levels, but to also communicate those plans uh, either to your clients or to your employees. Number six is the habit of doing more than paid for. This is interesting, eh? One of the penalties of leadership is the necessity of willingness upon the part of the leaders to do more than they require of their followers. So, uh, I might be guilty of not doing that, but historically, uh, I've built my reputation on doing that. And yeah, sometimes you have to do more than you're paid for. And of course, everybody hates anyone who snivels um, about whether precisely their paycheck matched the amount of work that they did. So most people look at the task and, you know, understand that they are are given a certain amount of money and they make sure that the task and the customer is happy uh, and don't nitpick over necessarily whether they had an hour or more or something like that that went unpaid. Seven, a pleasing personality. No slovenly careless person can become a successful leader. Leadership calls for respect Followers will not respect leaders who do not score highly on all factors of a pleasing personality." This one I've taken to heart so much so that I've actually I trained my employees to have certain phone manners and also certain email manners that are ridiculously cheerful. And this is something that just really greases the wheels and makes working with clients and other people very easy. Uh, There's no reason why anyone should ever be bossy or crabby uh, in a professional relationship. It's just not worth the cost. Because then, also, when you have to be kind of a tough guy, uh, you have such a reputation for being cheerful and pleasing that the tough guy is taken very seriously. Because obviously you must uh, be very upset or in strong contradiction if you are all of a sudden not uh, pleasing and cheerful. Number eight, sympathy and understanding. Successful leaders must be in sympathy with their followers. Moreover, they must understand them and their problems. So that's pretty good. Always knowing when your employees are struggling or your clients are frustrated and then being able to show that you understand that is key. Number nine, mastery of detail. Successful leadership calls for the mastery of details of the leader's position. So that's pretty good. Uh, I sort of pride myself on having an encyclopedic knowledge of my business, and I'm afraid of no detail. Still, uh, you'd have to probably have a counter one, which says, you know, don't get mired in detail, know when to delegate, and know when to find other people who know the details for you. And Napoleon Hill goes into that with sort of the mastermind network that we discussed earlier. Number 10, willingness to assume full responsibility. Successful leaders must be willing to assume responsibility for the mistakes and shortcomings of their followers. If they try to shift this responsibility, they will not remain leaders. If followers make mistakes and become incompetent, it is the leader who has failed. Now that's very that's very powerful right there. And all, all good leaders that I have ever met have taken responsibility for their whole team. Uh, they never push off responsibility, and they will use even use the word I when trying to, uh, for example, when uh, if, I, if one of my employees uh, screws up on a client assignment, uh, it's me on the phone that has to explain to it and defend either decision uh, or remedy it, but at all costs, the leader uh, takes full responsibility. And then here's the last one 11 cooperation successful leaders must understand and apply the principle of cooperative effort and be able to induce followers to do the same leadership calls for power and power calls for cooperation so that's uh, essentially getting people to work together including yourself and your clients and yourself and your employees so i'm going to take this list and as i said before is i came to these on my own but it's something there's something very refreshing And helpful in seeing someone else have written them down uh, in such a concise format. So I'm I'm going to take that as a signal that I should continue to follow those attributes. And if I do them well, hopefully someday I will be a leader myself. So that wraps up my book report on Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. I think at the end, now that I've thought about this, I do recommend the book. Uh, especially for people who are still in the job mode or the school mode and need to start rethinking about how they can be more free and less schooled and less jobbed. Even if it doesn't result in Carnegie-like riches, I still think it's a valuable mindset to take on, even if it only makes you marginally richer. I'll leave you now with a little bit more Napoleon Hill speaking on his own, and then a song.
0: Now, my mission in life is to help you and everyone who needs my help to open up and use the contents of the sealed envelope labeled Riches. And the starting point from which you must take off, if you wish to write your own ticket from here on out, for the remainder of your life, I will describe for you in these simple instructions. One, procure a neat pocket-sized a notebook or well, something on the order of this one here loose-leaf affair and on page one write down a clear description of your major desire in life the one circumstance or position or thing which you will be willing to accept as your idea of success and remember before you begin writing that your only limitations are those which you set up in your own mind or permit others to set up for you and two on page two of your notebook write down a clear statement of precisely what you intend to give in return for that which you desire from life and then start in right where you stand now to begin giving and three memorize both of your statements what you desire and what you intend to give in return for it and repeat them at least a dozen times daily And always end your statements with this expression of gratitude for the blessings with which you were gifted at birth. I ask not for divine providence for more riches, but more wisdom with which to accept and use wisely the riches I received at birth in the form of the power to control and direct my mind to whatever ends I desire.
2: Like the visionaries do, I wanna screw this stale, pale scene where I get.